Welcome to another exciting episode of Purpose on Purpose, Overcoming Adversity and Creating Resiliency. I'm your host, Dario Herrera, with my co-host, my faith-inspired visionary, Christy Grease. Christy, how are you? So good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Excited for today's conversation. And I'll introduce our guest here in a second. Uh, it's the first time we've had two guests join us. And we have, and it'll become apparent in a second, we have two guests from incredibly different backgrounds who deal with a completely different audience and clientele. And my guess is we're gonna find some common threads in their personal stories of resiliency and in the stories they'll share about their clients and their resiliency. And, and as you know, we've been kind of diving into, is there a for, the question of, is there a formula for creating resiliency and overcoming hardship to live your life's purpose? And we have found some interesting consistencies through the past guests. And I thought, hey, everything's been going so well, so let's try something different and uh, and dive into it. And, and I'll first introduce uh, Crystal Garcia. Thank you for joining us, Crystal. And she's joining us from an incredibly unique background and area of expertise. Uh, she's a sex trafficking survivor who has trained to become a self-love coach and a professional speaker. She's no stranger to adversity and resiliency. She's served as a human rights advocate for over 20 years and is specially versed in advocating for Me Too and BDSM survivors. We also have Dr. Sage Breslin. And Dr. Breslin, despite the picture-perfect external appearance growing up, she believed that if people knew who she really was, she wouldn't be accepted and that those around her would leave her. So she did her best to do all the right things, attend all the right schools until that mask mm -hmm. that she was wearing became too much of a burden. She experienced a youth filled with abuse, trauma, and loss. And she was able to overcome that to become an author and a coach. And with that, I'd like to welcome Crystal. I'd like to welcome Dr. Breslin. Thank you for joining us. It's great Thank to be you. here. Welcome. So so let's dive in. Let's, let's get right to the nitty gritty. So both of you, and I, I'll start with you, Crystal, and then we'll go to Dr. Breslin. Uh, Obviously, you've dealt with some incredible adversity, overcoming uh, being a victim of trafficking, of human trafficking, sex trafficking. Uh, you've dealt with some significant adversity. You also deal with a population that deals with significant adversity. Uh, when you hear the word resiliency, what comes to mind? And then the follow-up question to that is, is how does that show up? Like, how does that how does that happen? Uh, not only in yourself, but and the people you work with every day. Sure, thank you. So first of all, the first thing that comes to mind is desire. The, it's It really just started, I know for me, it was just for the wish for something. I, I didn't even, it doesn't even, the belief doesn't really have to be there first, it's just the desire, that's what I've noticed. And for me, it began with, I wish to just be happy. And that's not what my life was. I spent most of my life suicidal. It was just, mm. you know, it, that's just what, and that's just how I thought the rest of my life was going to be. And then now I come to a place where I love and celebrate my life. You know, it's it, but it was gradual. It's not something I ever thought that my life could be like. So for me, it starts with desire, you know, simply with the desire to want something better. And yeah. And, and what our audience doesn't know your background uh, like I do. You know, obviously I've read some of your writings and, uh, we've had a chance to connect. So, you know, tell us where you were in your life when that desire changed, that desire for something different, that desire for happiness. You know, what was going on in your life when that changed? 
Well, it was definitely a long time coming. Uh, so I was part of the covert sex trafficking industry. It's all sex trafficking, but it's from the space of coercion. It's incorrectly called the sex industry. There's no such mm -hmm. thing. That's actually pimp language. And so, of course, to a pimp, it's an industry, but it's not an industry. And so even the term prostitute, that's pimp language. So it's the prostituted or you know survivors. But we still use that terminology because a lot of people just really aren't aware. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I, the first time that I was trafficked, I was 17 years old. I was trying to run away. And um, then it just continued from there. And because I grew up with abuse was normal. So it was very easy to be coerced into the world of BDSM. Mm. And so I was a submissive. So for those who don't know what that is, what BDSM is, it's bondage, domination, and submission, sadism, and masochism. The title says it all. You know, but it's so built with gaslighting and grooming that, you know, and one of the things that I, so I speak about that now. I, I was a submissive, I was a switch, I was also a professional dominatrix. And so I was so ingrained in the programming of the rhetoric that I would spout the same thing. And I was creating a school, which is not the correct term, but that's, you know, and I was going to create curriculum and all this stuff. And I was like, yes, you know, I spouted the same rhetoric, like if it's not BDSM, it's not abuse. When I actually was diving deep to find the line between them, I realized there wasn't a line. Mm. And that confronted me. And that's when I started to like see things differently and challenge things and question things. And so now I educate people on the reality that BDSM is abuse, which as I'm sure you know, that's not a very popular conversation. So I'm going yeah. to a lot of friends, but I don't really care. Um, so I educate people on the reality of that and the reality of how much gaslighting, grooming, and it's, it's BDSM is trauma bonding, like mm. just period. Um, and so how much of that is ingrained so that people don't realize. So when people come to me and I, the first thing I tell them is just be gentle with yourself because it's set up to not be seen. And one of the key things that used is in BDSM, they use the term play with everything. Okay. Including rape play. That's not rape. That's not play. That's just, that's rape. Okay. So the mm -hmm. thing is putting the word rape, be, you know, the word play behind things like that or blood play or anything like that. What it does is it hooks the inner child. So it's a, it's a trap. The inner child hears play. Oh, this must be okay. And so it ensnares like the part of the person that really does want to play. And it creates this kind of gaslighting where the person throws out the word before or tries to embrace normalizing the word before. And yeah, so now I, I support people through that process and I support survivors of the sex industry. And so recognizing that what happened to them was real and detoxing from the gaslighting and the grooming and yeah, and 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 reaching their desire because they come with the desire for something better for themselves. Yeah, th thank you, Crystal. Dr. Breslin, in your, in your bio, you know, you talk about the mask that you wore. Right, and uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that, and and what was the the beginning point for you to realize that I need to take this off, right? I need to overcome, you know, what I've experienced, what I've been challenged by, uh, and and really start to make a change, right? Uh, can you speak into that a little bit for us? Yeah, I, you know, we may see slightly different populations, but um, our histories are not all that discrepant. Mm. 
Um, and I would, I would uh, mirror what Crystal said about there probably isn't a watershed moment. Um, it is probably more gradual for most of us. So for me, I, you know, I came into the world different. Um, I was intuitive. I was born clairvoyant. Um, and that didn't make me a popular kid because I did a lot of poking to figure out who had a body and who didn't. Um, mm. You know, and I was different and perpetrators could see me. You know, I was more visible because I was more isolated, because I was that kid that was more mm. alone on the playground. So I was um, early on sexually abused. Mm. Uh, by the time I was 15, I was targeted by a local cartel, groomed and gaslit into being sex trafficked. Mm. And, oh my you know, I had no so. idea. I had no <laughs> we idea. We didn't know that. Yeah. It was a solid mask, let me tell you. And um, I had probably the first really dark night of my soul on the, you know, on the day where I realized what was actually happening. Mm. It's like Crystal said, it's when the word play slips away and your eyes go, you know, like bubble eyed and you're like, oh, my God, this is not play. You know, mm -hmm. for me, uh, it wasn't ever play, but I actually had a belief that this I was having a relationship with this person, you know, at 16, 15. And of course, that wasn't the case at all. And in that moment, um, I was pretty brutally raped on that particular mm. night and dropped off in front of my parents' house. And I realized that I couldn't do it anymore, that I couldn't live anymore. It was just too much. And I uh, ended up taking a bottle of pills and mm. um, was clinically dead for 22 minutes, according to the clock in my bedroom. And I had a complete what they call an after-death experience rather than a near-death experience where mm. I met my version of God. And mm. I have a crystal clear memory of what I believed at the time that I got in my car and drove to our local church and knocked on the door and the minister let me in. Of course, it wasn't a minister I'd ever met, you know, because it, it didn't happen that way. It was through yeah. the veil and I believed that I had spent all night speaking to the mister about my disenfranchisement and about the fact that, you know, given what had happened to me, that there was no way I could be connected with God, that, that God could never embrace me in that way. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I heard what I really needed to hear, which is that's crap. Like, no, right. <laughs> no, God's never going to leave you. Are you kidding me? So, as I came into that, the ownership of that reality, you know, like my, my truth returned to me and I snapped back and launched back into my body, launched onto my feet and, mm. you know, probably a little bit TMI, but turned around and puked my guts out. Um, thank God, because I probably got a lot of the medication that had gone, you know, down the hatch out. And when I woke up, life was different. It didn't, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately I was still there. I had to figure out a plan for getting out. Um, it worked itself out and I, and I mean that God worked it out for me and found a way, a pathway out for me. 
and I ran. And I ran into um, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is called the Little, Little City. And it's got multiple guard gates. And I began working there. And it was the first time I felt safe in, I can't even begin to count mm. the years because I had this, I had quirky people all around me, which was awesome. You know, I didn't feel weird or bizarre. It was the first time in my life that I just, you know, that place is filled with quirky people and I didn't have to hide. And I had all of these security, you know, <laughs> security uh, details around me. So I began to feel safe. I began to feel like there was actually a way out. And, you know, I, in terms of resilience, I turned around not that much later, just a few years later, had a terrible car accident, went through a brain injury, had to learn mm. how to speak again, had oh, to change wow. my ideas about what I was going to do for a living. And then not too many uh, years later in graduate school, I had another accident and I was paralyzed. Mm. You know, I had a, when I finally got married and was having kids with my twins, I bled out, huge medical emergency, oh my God. went across the veil to grab my child and, you know, who had also not made it. God love medical resuscitation. <laughs> but this is what I've learned about resilience. I am, I'm a true warrior. That's my spirit. Yes, you are. I will, you know, you like, sure? People take you things away are. and I go, uh-uh, no, no, you're yeah. not taking that away from me. And I think that's what was based in my resilience is you will not take it away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Whoop, I'm up again. Whoop, I'm up again <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> and, and that's kind of, I think, what's led me, led me through is, yeah. no, no, this is my life. My story doesn't end this way. You don't get so to belief, determine that. If we can summarize it, a belief that you are worthy and really that right to live on your own terms is yours. It's God-given yeah. and it's yours and yeah. nothing or anyone is going to take it away from you. Yeah, absolutely. God put me here for a reason and I don't think it was to experience pain. I think it was actually to teach people how to be resilient and that we can be, we can go through horrific adversity and we can come back and be valuable and be ourselves and live in our truth. I know Christy has a couple of questions. Wow. For I want to say two things real quick, just really Please. quickly. One is it's sad to hear how prevalent sexual abuse is. Unbelievable. I knew Crystal had that background. I did know Dr. Breslin had that background. And uh, we've had other guests uh, with similar experiences that uh, really astonished me. And it's it's sad that it's as prevalent as it is. And it's something that gets to be talked about more. And, and I'm, I'm, I want to encourage you both to, to continue sharing uh, because sharing uh, empowers and educates and gives other people the power to share. Uh, and I think that's incredibly valuable. And secondly, I want to offer my gratitude for your courage uh, in sharing. And then the other thing I want to do is, I, I, as a man, uh, I know I wasn't involved in any of that stuff with either of you, but I, I want to apologize uh, for your experiences. Uh, 
neither one of you deserve that. I know you both know that. Uh, both of you are beautiful beings. Uh, God put you on this earth uh, for a divine purpose. And, you know, from what I experience of both of you, you're living that purpose now. Uh, but neither one of you did anything to deserve that. Uh, shouldn't have had that experience. And uh, as, as the host of this show and as someone who has empathy for what you shared, uh, I want to issue an apology, uh, a sincere apology for those adverse experiences uh, you both had to go through to get to where you are today. Thank you so much. Echoing what Dario said, just thank you for, you know, there are no accidents. So that was not the plan when this um, podcast was set up, but it was a bigger plan clearly uh, for you to connect and for us to really shed light on this. Um, I've been absolutely shocked to learn so much about human trafficking from some fierce advocates in my world. And as Dario said, how prevalent it is, but what I'm always amazed by, and this is by just people I talk to, people in my life, um, warrior parents that I talk to on a regular basis and for the nonprofit that um, I, I started, is how sometimes the people who have been through the most difficult and really heart-wrenching experiences are the ones many times that I see rising from the ashes and really living their lives as Dr. Breslin said, with ownership and tenacity because they know how precious it is. Um, especially when you're talking about a medical condition that you're you're living your life one way and the next minute you're paralyzed. I mean, you, you both understood and, and appreciated how powerful your freedom is um, and your lives are and, and, and what it means to be an empowered woman and be able to protect your body um, and you you went on about all these different ways, including being in a facility with with major security to protect yourself. So I just honor both of you um, and thank you for your vulnerability. And then I'd like to ask, you know, I, we've we've been kind of having these amazing conversations with different people about resiliency. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about was having some anchor point, whether it's God, whether it's having a tribe. What was that for each of you? Maybe Dr. Breslin, you can go first. Was there somebody in your life that you were able to just be fully you with through all of this? Was there some? Was there a person? Was there a group? Was it God? What, what was it that that really anchored you through all these experiences? You know, I I could say that there were angels walking through my life probably all the time. Um, some had bodies, some were in human form and some not. Um, I think that for me, it may not have been a single anchor um, other than once I really had that, you know, uh, tantamount come to Jesus moment where I realized like there's no, God will never leave me. Like once I got that, I could always anchor in and ground with the divine. Like that was something that I could always do. Humans were a little harder for me, you know, I, I, um, to the club. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I had been hurt badly. And so yeah. there were people that, uh, as I said, walked through my life. I've been so incredibly 
blessed since graduate school to have a best friend and we are still best friends. And she has been as close as a person could come to a personal anchor, to, you know, a consistent anchor. I would say, you know, my family has done everything that they could do um, to be present for me. I think, unfortunately, they didn't always understand me. Um, they believed the mask, you know, so unfortunately, they didn't see what was happening right in front of them. Mm. Um, I think that once I began to shed the mask and share more openly, they were right there to do everything in their power to support me and to allow me to be myself, you know, in, in gradients, right? right. <laughs> as much as they could. Thank you. And Crystal, was there something or somebody that really was able to help get you through these or was it your per just your personal tenaciousness? Well, I would say definitely it was a mix. Um, I I had incredible friends that showed me what love looks like. I, mm -hmm. I learned through my friendships that abandonment isn't normal. So I got that really beautiful foundation through them. And it's not something I was used to. I mean, I grew up, I've been abused since I was very little. So it was just mm. normal to me. These behaviors were normal to me. And I was accustomed and I was groomed to enable narcissists. That's how I grew up. Mm. And so I didn't even realize what narcissists were or that the behaviors I was around wasn't normal until I met my friends and they flat out told me, Crystal, no, that's not normal. No, people don't normally react that way when you say X, Y, and Z. You know, so I learned a lot through my friendships. So through my soul. Sorry to interrupt, but what age was that that those friends started to model what love is uh, in, in real terms? Sure, I'd say um, I think that started... I'm 39, so I think that started about early 30s. Okay. You know, I saw I saw some of the glimpses of it in my 20s, but it wasn't sustainable. It was mixed with unhealthiness. So I, I saw things that I thought would have been better. They were better than what I was used to. But it wasn't until my 30s that I actually met really healthy friends. And now I only have healthy people in my life. Mm -hmm. I only have healthy relationships. So through that, and of course, therapy and life coaching and all this other stuff and the work that I did with myself, then I started to have healthy boundaries and just create and recognize that I deserve better. I mean, even being, you know, even being trafficked because it's all set up to keep you there and make you feel like you deserve that, you know? And so we'd have women come in. Uh, oh, also, first of all, there's no such thing as a strip club um, or a strip club owner. That's a pimp, you know? So, um, so we'd be, you know, we'd be mm. there, you know, stripping, um, being pimped. Right. Um, and so, and they would have this horrible thing that is called um, amateur night, which is really like, suck more women in night is really what it should be. Mm -hmm. Like, how can we pimp more women? Um, mm -hmm. And so the oftentimes what would happen is they would come in, they'd get on stage and they'd run off crying because that's an appropriate reaction where be you're being dehumanized. And those of us who were there were pretty numbed out to that happening to us, but we would tell them, you shouldn't come back here. You don't belong here. But it, we couldn't see that we didn't belong there either because we had been mm. for years so ingrained that we did. So coming through recognizing, oh, I do deserve better. I do deserve tenderness. I do deserve to feel safe. Like now it's actually just been the past several years. And this is the first time I'm actually feeling safe. 
I've never felt that before in my life. I had no clue what that meant. And so it was my friendships for sure. Definitely my spirituality, definitely my connection to higher power. That was a very big thing for me because, you know, human beings are human beings and they will disappoint but <laughs> through no fault of their own, but they will. And so I also had to learn to recognize that I needed to get up in the morning for myself. I'm a mom. So I would get up for my child. I'm a single mom. Uh, but then I realized I was like, I need to get up in the morning for me. And so the self-love was a huge proponent for me. Like it was, it was a huge um, foundation for me. So, and I had to do the work to be okay with just being present with myself because I was constantly, you know, through the trauma, being present was dangerous. And mm -hmm. if I was present, something terrible was happening. So I had to disassociate. I learned to disconnect from my body. So slowly learning how to reconnect with my body and that being safe to be present and being safe to be present in my body was a big part of, of this healing for me as well. So, so I, I heard a, a few things there, Krista. One is starts with desire. You saw what love is through a tribe. You found a purpose, and you know your mom. So that was part of your purpose, but really your purpose was showing up for yourself, right? And then you got support from that too. You know, additional support in terms of therapy. Uh, so it seems like that you know that path to resiliency, you know, has you know several steps. The first one being the desire to want something else. Yes. Right? And I yep. think let me go back to what Dr. Breslin said: is that that knowing that you deserve more. Mm -hmm. Right. The knowing that you're entitled, you know, by your own birthright and your own divine relationship with whomever your God is, whatever your beliefs are, you know, that you deserve more. Yes. Right? And so for me, it all comes back to sovereignty. You know, yeah. everything that I was seeking, I'm like, oh, it's right here in my own being. I am the authority of my life. So that's where it came to. And there was a lot of times where, sorry, it's New York City, but there's a lot of times where it, you know, I couldn't believe that I deserve this. It was just a wish and I would watch people. And that's why I tell people just being yourself and just being whole with you, you have no idea whose life you're saving. Cause I would witness people just in their joy. And I was like, oh my God, how, what does that look like? So I was, I yeah. was just gonna say that. I was gonna ask both of you how pivotal it is to see other people living healthy lives, you know, and that could just create the spark for the hope um, and, and the belief like Dario had mentioned for you to get better is to witness it somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was, and that's why, like I tell people, I'm like the, the, to me, I say the most powerful form of activism is self-love because mm -hmm. that is the root of what changes everything. And being a human rights advocate for over 20 years, I always come from a space of self-love and it's very easy to get lost being an activist. You can be like, if it's not founded on safe love, self-love, it just creates another addiction and it becomes an excuse to be abusive to someone else and, and pretend that's healthy. So that's a whole thing. But yeah, so I tell people like just mm -hmm. being like, sometimes we think we have to do so much and it's like, no, we just have to live our joy because that is the biggest difference. And as cliche as it may sound, it really is true because seeing these people and even just walking around outside, I would see these people in their absolute joy and I would be in awe and I'm like, oh wow, I want that. I still don't believe it, I could have it, but just witnessing, it gave me a wish to start with. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's important. So, so how does that kind of uh, marry up with your experience, Dr. Breslin, uh, you know, 
with yours, it seemed like it starts the anchor, the initial anchor was annoying. Uh, and then you had multiple challenges after, you know, you uh, attempted, you know, the unspeakable really. Uh, and I'm so sorry for that experience. Um, but you had multiple moments of challenges, um, physical and otherwise. So beyond the knowing, like, how did you, how did you bounce back? How did, how were you able to get up every day and overcome, you know, learning, having to learn to speak again and how to move your body again and things that so many of us take for granted, you know, what was that like for you? And, and do those steps resonate with you? Yeah, you know, I, I they do. <laughs> First answer, yes, they do resonate with me. I think, as I said, you know, that warrior spirit is something that, you know, God imbued me with to, you know, get up off the canvas, get up off the carpet, get up off your bed. Um, I just knew in my heart that there was a life waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And all I had to do was accept my truth fully enough to step into it. Mm. Um, now, I, a, a big part of the population that I have worked with for 30 years is men and women who have been in violent relationships in, uh, who have been victimized with sexual harassment and specifically uh, women recovering from Stockholm syndrome, which we would love to rename as trauma-based perceptual distortion because it is a coping strategy for when you are an, in an environment that you can't exit easily and where you've been gaslit to the degree that you no longer understand your own truth. You've accepted mm. somebody else's truth as your own. And Crystal, as you were talking, just one of the things that I loved was just that, that notion that when we step into our own truth, when we step back into self-love, everything becomes accessible, finally, right? Yes. Because when you don't have access to your own truth, there's no, it's like, you know, being anchorless in a, in a huge perfect storm on the sea. You know, there's nothing to do except for survive. So when you're able to finally access your own truth and see your, yourself and your life for what it is, you know, then you can move forward. Then there is, then you can anchor. But when somebody else is guiding and directing truth or reality for you, there's just nowhere to go with that other than survival. So, uh, w without revealing your your, I'm sorry, Krista, you want you have a question? Well, I was just I just want to unpack self love a little bit. I mean, yeah. I look at self love as a piggy bank. You know, <laughs> I go to a yoga class. I'm you know depositing into my health bank. I, you know, I I take a bath, whatever it is. And, it, and for some reason, it's so challenging. Um, it has been a challenge for me to learn how to do that and, and recognize that I have to do that in order for me to give back. You know, it's the ox oxygen mask on myself first before I can help my kiddos. So can you just, each of you say the top three things that you do to deposit into your self-love bank? I love that question. Great question. I would love to jump in. Um, it's, I, I have a ritual. Um, Hal Elrod wrote The Miracle Morning, and, and he's written it for a lot of different industries. He's a very smart guy. <laughs> Figured out, you know, how where to say what he needed to say. 
And for me, it, it took a while to figure out, I don't do mornings well, I don't sleep well. So um, I tend to be a later morning kind of gal. Um, and, and even as a single mom of five, that is, I've, you know, yeah. I, I gritted my teeth for a long time until they got mm. old enough. And frankly, the best gift of the pandemic was <laughs> get up and drive anyone anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I could really step into my miracle morning, which for me, honestly, I, I love the view from my bedroom. It's better uh, at certain times of year, but I go downstairs, I get my coffee, I get fruit, fresh fruit, I get some toast, I put it on a tray, I carry it back up to my room, I get back into bed, I put my tray on my lap, <laughs> I love and it. I just treat myself like a queen. I, I have tried to get my kids to do it for me. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you figure that out. <laughs> right, right. I think that it's, I think that the reason they haven't learned it is because I needed to learn to do it for myself. I needed to mm -hmm. learn to treat myself as important. That mm -hmm. is how I start every day, unless there is some bizarre experience, that's how I start my day. And it really makes all the difference in the world. I think um, a dog showed up in my life and not having had a dog for like 45 years, I think getting up and walking the dog and being out in the sunshine um, mm -hmm. is part of that. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes I think like, oh my God, I gotta walk the dog again, you know? <laughs> but it is, it allows me to get outside and move my body and remember how important that is for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of a second thing. And then the third thing actually is that um, while it doesn't work every night, my kids will come and crawl into bed with me and watch a show. And I largely watch whatever it is they want to watch. Sometimes I make them watch old 80s movies. Like on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's your favorite 80s movie? Uh, just to put in some levity here. What's what's your favorite 80s movie, Dr. Breslin? Okay, so like Mr. Mom, Kindergarten Cop. Yes. <laughs> Ferris I love Ferris Bueller. Those are great choices. Oh, Ferris Bueller days off. That's classic. I, yeah. I, them to watch Re Revenge of the Nerds. I had to hunt pretty hard for it, but oh, that was Saturday yeah. night. So, and my my youngest are sixteen year old twins now. So you can imagine boys, you know. So the boys all climbing into bed with me and watching crazy movies and things like that. So yeah. that's the other thing that just totally fills my emotional bank account. Mm, I love that. What about you, that's Crystal? Yes. Yeah, so rituals for me are absolutely, I love doing that. I have um, this pretty bowl that I bought myself on that, that looks like one of those old fashioned like ceramic bowls. And I just, I'll give myself a pedicure with that and I'll just relax and lounge and just, uh, you know, I, I found a, a perfect little regimen. And so I do that. So that's something I like to do and I treat myself. So I take good care of, of my body. And then also uh, being vulnerable. That's been a huge triumph for me. So being mm -hmm. vulnerable and actually, which goes along with the intimacy as well. So being mm -hmm. vulnerable, being intimate. And that's a huge thing for me because intimacy avoidance has been like just my baseline for so much of my life that yeah, I'm like, and I'm still. My goodness. 
Yeah, and I'm still expanding, of course. But yeah, so allowing myself to be vulnerable, telling my friends, being open, like, hey, I, you know, I have complex PTSD. So if I'm struggling with a, a an episode, you know, I, I actually tell people now instead of just be like everything's fine. So being, you know, being vulnerable and intimate. So that's that's a big one for me. And also just taking time to do nothing. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, I'm an overachiever, so I have to stop myself, I have to fight myself not to do things. <laughs> I'm like, no, like today, I'm like, I'm relaxing. And I'm like, oh, and then I'll, I'll pack it. No, 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 I'm relaxing. So giving myself permission to do nothing or as close to nothing as possible is a huge one for me because before I wouldn't let myself do that at all because my self-worth was, you don't deserve to rest. You need to work. Mm. If you don't work, you're lazy. If you don't do, you know, you can't. So it was, it was extremes. It was, uh, you know, be a workaholic or you're lazy. And I'm like, mm -hmm. or, or maybe I'm relaxing. Could that possibly be it? Right. So allowing myself to relax, do nothing and, you know, put, work on pause so that's been and you know just acknowledging that it's good to be selfish we have this kind of conversation that selfishness is bad and there is a shadow side to it sure which is self-absorption but really selfishness for me is self-love and self-care and so the healthy aspect of it i just embrace it i'm like yeah i'm gonna be selfish right now nope the phone goes off you know i'm just gonna do nothing so yeah. i'm reading yeah. a book right now called the art of doing nothing because oh, as, a, awesome. as a, a recovering perfectionist, that is a foreign oh, concept at, at the highest level. And um, I got about a quarter of the way through, I haven't opened it again, because um, I was doing nothing, right? But, but it's, especially so much of it is how everything that both of you are saying and doing is counter to our culture. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just counter, you know, we we're told got to go faster, got to go harder, you got to you know, all this stuff is done over the internet and Zoom calls, um, but how important it is for us to slow down, have a moment to fill ourselves up. And in that, you both are, as we discussed earlier, are being an example for the loved ones in your life. And when I'm doing that, when my kids come in and see me praying, have the Bible open or doing my yoga practice, they're learning to do that for their own lives. And then obviously if mommy does that every single day, it's something that's important. It's not something I need to necessarily say to them, but the right. witnessing of that, I think is is healing not only for ourselves, but it also cuts those generational, um, like chronic ties to things that are unhealthy, whether it be drinking or whatever it is. Um, when they can, your children can see you or people in your life can see you living out your life in a healthy way after all this trauma and all this trauma, it really is such a, a source of inspiration, um, that, that it's possible. And I just commend both of you and I'm going to take a couple of those. I think I'm going to need to make, give myself a cool tray. <laughs> I, I, I like that. And, uh, you know, I work with Christy, we work together, uh, in her foundation, it's called mickeysmiracles.org. It's. Uh, a global pediatric epilepsy organization that helps families get to a level four epilepsy center, the highest level of epilepsy centers to get urgent diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and I know that she's a recovered perfectionist. So when Crystal said that, it resonated, you know, very deeply. And and we both, she and I have, you know, what I would call, you know, accelerated work ethics. And, and we rarely give ourselves permission to not do anything. So I, that resonates with me strongly, and the the idea of you know having the kids climb uh, into bed with you, we do oh, it. On yeah. the, my wife and I do it on the couch, and it doesn't matter what Everywhere. we're watching. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter what we're watching. 
we're doing it together and it's a moment of mm -hmm. presence and it's a moment to enjoy, to be grateful. Uh, so, so both of those resonate with me uh, very strongly. I need to practice some of the other ones <laughs> more regularly because uh, I work out, but I beat up my body working out and I don't really kind of recover very often. But uh, I, want, I wanted to kind of ask a follow-up question going back to resiliency because um, self-care looks like and self-love seems to be part of that formula too. And, and I wonder... What does that process look like when, when someone comes to see you, Dr. Breslin, and they say, I've experienced X and and there's despair and there's lack of hope and there's pain and there's suffering. And so where do you start? Like, how do you start implanting? Uh, how do you start with the seed of letting them know that they can overcome that hardship and that they are they have everything within themselves they need to be, in fact, resilient? Yeah, the breakthrough work that I do, it follows a model like there are steps in it um, mm -hmm. it may be different for each person and one of the first things I talk with my clients about is you know what are their beliefs where where are their resources you know do they allow some form of relationship with any form of God or angels or ascended masters or whatever you want you know whatever and if they don't you know do they have a family dog or cat I will look for the relationship with some form of comfort anywhere I can get it. And um, we do deep diving. So we dive into the past through the body, wherever the body is holding on to tension, pain, discomfort. We move there and we will track it through memory. And when we find a remembered experience, their wisest self goes with, I go with, you know, we time travel together and we engage with that version of themselves that is stuck and is in pain. And then we do something that doesn't happen a lot in therapy, which is we resolve. So mm -hmm. we bring in what was unseen at the time. So it may be disappearing the veil so that they can see God or Jesus or angels or masters or that they can look behind them and realize the family dog is there or the cat is sitting on their lap. Anywhere we can create the acknowledgement of their experience and to begin to uplift their humanity, their self-worth, their self-esteem, their self-love, that's what we do. and we leave messages behind in the memories of the past. I always leave a message. Um, I'm big on hugging those younger versions of my client's selves. And we, I ask that, you know, the adult version leave a message as well. And if they've brought in some form of angelic presence, we ask that presence to leave a message as well. So that when we come back to the present time and the present being, that version is already beginning to heal mm. and we can retroact. So that's mm. kind of how my process works with my clients, right. whether they're leaders, entrepreneurs, or just folks who have been through a lot. doesn't matter to me. So it's going to source uh, the source of the pain to resolve and then bringing that resolution present. Yes. Right. So I think that's, you know, something uh, that we all can learn from. You know, I know that when I focus on past, 
uh, it deprives me and the people around me from from being in my heart. I'm in my head, you know, thinking about past stuff, and I'm not present. And and non-present me is dangerous, you know, thinking about past uh, stuff, whether it's you know past stuff for me or past stuff for a loved one or what have you. You know, that's for me. I recognize that's a dangerous process. When I'm present, uh, I'm grateful. Uh, I'm paying attention to what's happening around me. I'm taking all that in, soaking that in, and, and really feeding my soul. And I'm in my heart and not in my head. Uh, so I, I love that process, Dr. President. So I think we can add, you know, I, I think if you all agree, we can probably add the idea of being present uh, to that formula uh, because you can't undo anything that's happened. You can resolve some of that stuff and change your relationship to it, but you can't change, you know, your own behavior or what someone did to you or what have you. Um, so you have to find a way, you get to find a way to resolve that. But being present, you know, is probably the most powerful tool in that resolution because it lets you be grateful for everything around you um, in, in real time. You know, how about you, Crystal? When, when someone comes to you and, and has been a victim of, you know, the, the kind of enslavement, that's what it is, mm -hmm. that, that you personally experienced and that your clients experience, like, how, what's that process like? Where do you start and, and kind of, you know, planting that seed of hope with them so that they can go through the stages of, of you know, personal resilience? Sure. Well, it's definitely for sure different for each person. Um, but yeah. we start off with just speaking because at first people, they just need to be heard and need to be acknowledged that what happened to them is real and that their abuse was did happen and was real. Because we live in a world that is filled with, you know, has taken on the pimp identity, has taken on the pimp language and actually perpetuates and does the pimp's job for them. You know, so there's a lot of gaslighting, not just by the pimps and the quote unquote industry, but also by our society who thinks they're doing something right and calls themselves sex positive, but they're not actually being sex positive. They're actually enabling the perpetuation of sexual slavery. So the first thing we do is we have a conversation and they share a little bit that they're comfortable with. And after we take time doing that, because it, it, I have to establish that, that safety parameter, but once we do that, then we start to, depending on the person, depending on the triggers, because there's also triggers for each survivor. What was done to them? What did the, you know, what did the pimp do? What did the so-called dom do? What was done? Because there are certain people, they can't do breath work. They're not going to be able to, you know, close their eyes at certain times. So it depends. It's very specific to each individual and what they're going through. But we go through that. We start to actually, we do work with presence. And I start with one body part. And we take a very short time. And then we don't, I don't revisit that and like maybe not even in the next session. We take our time with that because being present is going to bring up a lot of anxiety. We do go over rituals and finding what is non-triggering. So I go through them and we go through the list of what are things that are not connected with the trafficking. What are things that were not connected with the sexual slavery that they can reconnect with? And you know, mm -hmm. we also go through the list of what was triggered and what was misused with the trafficking that mm -hmm. used to they used to love, but they can no longer connect to. And I kind of put that on the back shelf to just kind of return to that at a later time. You know, so the the progress would be at some point to re-engage when they're ready and when it's safe with the things they love that were taken from them because of it was used to abuse them. 
And so then we go through that, we go through the conversation of sensory, especially when it comes to BDSM survivors. There's this misconception that BDSM is about the senses. No, it's not. The senses existed since the beginning of time and BDSM has existed for a very long time and that it was initially called torture. Let's just be real. So having this time with people and like moving through that section and having that conversation and letting people know because with the gaslighting they're told no that wasn't you consented you wanted to be there and there's a big difference between consent and acquiescence so mm -hmm. if someone is in a trauma state they can say the words yes in fear of further harm so when they're in a state of BDSM and they're in that place, that's not consensual. You can't consent to abuse. That's acquiescence. And the reason that money exchanges hands when it comes to the sex industry is to bypass consent. So neither of these worlds has consent in it, but a lot of our society isn't aware of that. So they, they victim blame either intentionally or accidentally by telling these people, oh, you wanted to be there. You chose it. You cannot choose those things. So so we go through that we go through the language we start to detox because one of the biggest things of the abusers of the pimps of the doms of the slave you know the slave trade is to leave the person feeling like they should feel bad for the abuser so we start to unravel that and start to recognize what is actually what this is all the abuser and that they do not need to take on what happened to them. So we start to work through that and then we take our time and we move through, we go deeper into the conversation, which is different for each person. And we go into different practices depending on the individual. What's interesting is your process goes back to source too. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and part of that source is to, to tell your clients that, you know, that's not normal. Right, because there's a lot of minimization that happens, right, to normalize and minimize to normalize. So you you give them permission not, not to do that. Right, uh, source of that, which, which I think is great. And I know, listen, we can go on uh, on these we topics could. forever. <laughs> uh, I know we're short on time. So uh, on behalf of Christy, Crystal, Dr. Breslin, you know, thank you so much for being here. I think we learned a lot about the threads that are consistent in overcoming adversity and creating resiliency and that we all have what it takes within us. Um, it might be more difficult to access, but we all have what it takes within us to overcome adversity, create resiliency and to live our purpose. And uh, I want to say to our audience, uh, if you have any questions for Christopher or Dr. Breslin, please leave them in the comments. Uh, we'll forward them to them. If there are other topics you want to discuss or follow up, uh, you know, conversation to what we've talked about today, uh, you know, please let us know in the comments. And uh, you know, I, I again am just astonished at the level of vulnerability and, and transparency here. And uh, I, I think this is where healing takes place. And in the sharing, it gives other people permission to share and begin healing. So I, I thank both of you, Christy. Of course, I always thank you for being such a magnificent host and for your empathy and for your life experience and, and everything you contribute to us. Um, with that, uh, we're closing the, the, this episode of Purpose on Purpose, Overcoming Adversity and Caring Resiliency. Until next time, blessings to you all.